0: Hello and welcome to David's Politics Show. Almost exactly a year has passed since the start of Russia's second invasion of Ukraine in less than a decade. And what a year it's been, marked first by jubilation at the unexpected success of the Ukrainian armed forces, especially around Kyiv then by consternation at the realization that this was going to turn into a long, grinding, attritional war. To take stock of the current military and political situation at the one-year mark, I'm delighted to be joined again by the noted Russia and Ukraine expert Dr. Andreas Umland from the Stockholm Center for Eastern European Studies at the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. It's a pleasure to have you back on the podcast, Dr. Umland. Thanks for being here.
1: Thanks, David, for having me. It's a pleasure for me too.
0: So the last time we spoke was in June of 2022. Uh, just to cast our minds back to last summer, at that time Russia was pushing on Severodonetsk and, and Lysychansk, which it eventually did take. And of course, since then there was been there was the uh, stunning counteroffensive around Kharkiv, the Russian retreat, or at least partial retreat in Kherson in the south. Uh, let me just ask you to give us a kind of a, a tour d'horizon of where you think we stand militarily. Just this morning, the Institute for the Study of War wrote that, uh, in their view, the Russian offensive, such as it is, has, has basically already begun, and they don't think it will uh, necessarily amount to much because Russia doesn't have the reserves to, to really give this, uh, what they're calling an offensive, enough momentum. Is that also your view of, uh, of where we stand at this stage in the war?
1: yes um, i would add that perhaps now also for russia the time is running out because uh, the temperatures will get warmer and then the soil will become muddier and then offensive operations in general will be both for the ukrainian and the russian side become more difficult to move um, armored heavy armor um, across the uh, the muddy soil so Um, My hope is that indeed now we've seen basically already much of this uh, offensive, if one wants to call it that way, and that there may be perhaps now um, in March uh, a less active uh, period, and um, that will then presumably give Ukraine time to actually get the uh, various uh, new armor that it has been promised by the west but that has not yet uh, arrived the armored personal carriers the uh, vehicle uh, the infantry vehicle vehicles the uh, heavy tanks mm-hmm. hopefully um, at least a part of that will uh, will appear during spring and then perhaps we could see in um, in summer a new offensive by by ukraine if once it has amassed enough uh, um new armor and uh, the the soldiers have been trained uh, on them perhaps then um ukraine could perhaps repeat something uh, similar to what it did um last year in Khark- in the kharkiv and Kherson regions mm-hmm. yeah
0: right yes yeah, so we're all we're all eagerly awaiting the uh, the ukrainian offensive or counteroffensive now let me let me switch to the to the politics. I want to devote most of our m- most of our time to the, to the political situation. And let's talk a little bit about Russia first. Um, you made a very interesting argument uh, in a piece you published recently. I read it in German, but I think it's also uh, available in English, in which you pointed out that the the constitutional changes that have taken place in Ukraine itself, but of course, perhaps even more importantly in in Russia. Uh, the The formal annexation of certain uh, Ukrainian territories has paradoxically uh, made russia or, or put Russia in the position of having made itself in a way a failed state because it doesn't it doesn 't actually control those territories they're on on paper they are now at least in in moscow's view uh, Russian but de facto they 're not thankfully now, let me ask you sort of a two sided question about this first of all why do you think Putin did it when he did it? Was it mostly for, for short-term reasons? He was just concerned about domestic support at that particular point in time, and this was a quick way to, to kind of get a boost? Or do you think he, he had kind of more long-term views in mind? Namely, he wanted, he was thinking to, to even his, to the time after him, and he wanted to bind his successor's hands in a way that, you know, would, would, would make it very difficult for any future Russian leader, to to bargain away these um, these territories, or perhaps it was a combination of both.
1: Yes, uh, I mean, who knows what 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 is in their minds? Because um, sometimes, apparently, also the motivations uh, for decisions don't seem to be entirely uh, rationally grounded. They can be um, also have certain emotional basics and be uh, ideologically driven there may be internal bureaucratic and political processes that we are not fully aware of. So Mm -hmm. um, my suspicion is that there is much more political uh, infighting going on within the Kremlin than we see. Um, And sometimes uh, certain glimpses come out and then we can sort of speculate. Uh, about it i think it was a signal for the uh, russian population it was also a signal to the to the west that uh, now this uh, would be a new sort of red line and presumably russia would uh, then be justified to use nuclear weapons for once um, the the territories uh, are reconquered although we have already now reconquered territories um, namely, or most prominently, the city of Kherson. So, um, that was perhaps done for domestic consumption and for foreign consumption, and perhaps even, as you indicated, for a possible successor uh, to bind uh, him or her, probably rather him. Um, but it was, um, is now also creating, I would say, for. Putin, a difficulty in that um, to make such a constitutional change, such a territorial constitutional change in one direction, it's, it's much more easier than to reverse it now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the main argument in the artic- article that you mentioned was actually that now with these new annexations, it's difficult to imagine What kind of uh, compromise could be reached at negotiations? And then the question is, would would such negotiations make sense at all? Because Russia would would have to change again its constitution in order to make certain territorial concessions. And that is not so easy now to do. Uh, To to take these these territories back again um, or to give them back again to Ukraine will be... I think politically much more uh, complicated than uh, to annex them, which is, you know, which was an easy and quick thing to do, as as it was 2014 with uh, with Crimea. Um, So um, he is now also. um, I mean, Putin is now also in a certain deadlock with this situation and he isn't even has to as you indicated at, he would at negotiations he would have to demand actually from ukraine additional territory because uh, the four oblasts that um, russia has annexed the four mainland um, dryland oblasts are not fully controlled yet by russia and um uh, and uh, and have never been um, fully controlled by russia and now in negotiations, um, if, if Putin represents uh, his, his country, then he would have to actually negotiate for an extension of the Russia-controlled territory. So that creates a really absurd situation, actually. That's why these calls for negotiations are, that are very popular, let's say, in Germany are rather naive
0: yes absolutely and and this raises uh, f- what for me a, an interesting kind of broader point which is how to think about creating the conditions for some sort of peace whatever that peace ends up looking like with with a with a with a power which is self-consciously irredentist right because that's what russia is it's it's claiming on on the basis of spurious uh, historical arguments that the territory of another sovereign state in in fact belongs to it. Are there any examples from either russian or 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 soviet history or or more European history more broadly which can help us think about what it takes to to ultimately come to some sort of uh way out of an out of this impasse with with an irredentist power or is it simply battlefield defeats and nothing else?
1: Yes, um, I think there's uh, little else, else here to do, especially after these constitutional changes, and assuming that to reverse these changes is politically, uh, as I mentioned, much more difficult than to, uh, to make the annexations. So what is left uh, for Ukraine is, I would say, to reconquer the um the mainland territories with crimea things may be in a way easier in that all one has to do with crimea is basically to cut it off from supply lines by way of um, capturing the land connection by destroying the kerch kerch bridge and then perhaps by uh, by attacking the ferries with which um, the uh, the supplies are uh, transported to uh, crimea so um, Crimea may not have to be reconquered. It could be simply cut off from Russia, and then um, and then both the Crimeans and and the Russians would would uh, would ask for some sort of negotiation sooner or later.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to move on to to Europe's political response in just a second, but let me pick up on a point you 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 hinted at earlier, which is uh, the, the fact that there may be more tension and more, um, uh, maybe even dissatisfaction within, within the power circles in Moscow than, than we may see. Let me ask you something that's been on my mind in, in the last couple of weeks is this, this kind of back and forth between Prigozhin, the, the head of the so-called Wagner group and the Russian ministry of defense. Um, they've been kind of bickering and to put it mildly, what is, what do you think that tells us about the, the fault lines? There may be emerging within within Russian political structures.
1: Well, I mean, there has been a lot of commentary on on this, and um, in December, looked it looked as if Prigozhin was on the rise, and then in January, um, perhaps then the uh, sort of traditional militaries have fought back. But um, if you look at it um, in the sort of historical perspective over the last quarter of a century, these sort of um, uh, infighting has always been there, um, also in peacetime, also, uh, you know, under totally different uh, conditions, also between different uh, power holders, the, the Siloviki. Um mm-hmm. There has been a competition and uh um so to so to say not ideologically driven um conflict but uh simply power struggles that uh, have been taking place and um i i can remember a, a few of, of such cases earlier so this is not that um that surprising actually i wouldn't overestimate it and uh, so far at least the power structure seems to be holding um it will become much, become much more interesting. these sort of struggles will become much more interesting when the um, economic um, the social and the social situations will deteriorate. Then the salience of these fault lines will, I think, rise and um, then the whole system will be more shaky. And then indeed these uh, clan wars, um can become uh, politically um, important and uh, much more risky for the regime.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, very very interesting. That's another uh, <laughs> yet further further evidence of the need to to have a kind of a historical perspective on these things. Let me ask you about about uh about Europe. Um there was a recent CSIS event um which I I listened to Uh, on YouTube in which basically the participants agreed among themselves that that Europe had more since the beginning of the war had responded more or less marvelously uh, much better than anybody would have expected the sanctions the the fact that they were able to uh, minimize their dependence on on Russian Russian energy and so on and so forth I'm a little bit skeptical about that it seems to me that if it hadn't been for the Biden administration's decisiveness in in uh, in actually coming to to Kiev's aid, although they ha- they have you know perhaps been slower than uh, than than they might have been in, in certain in the delivery of certain weapon systems and so on and so forth. But basically they they've they've been there. If it hadn't been for that, it seems to me that Europe would have been uh, pretty helpless. Um, what is your what is your take after after a year uh, of this of this war? How would you judge Europe's response on the whole?
1: Well, it's it's difficult to think about an alternative scenario here, but I would uh, still think that indeed the the refugees coming from Ukraine and and the horrible pictures um, that we are having have changed. uh, And I would even say deeply changed the West European public perception of Russia and of this war um, that wasn't all that much of a surprise for the Central East European member countries of the EU and NATO. They sort of knew that something like that would could happen already earlier. What I've actually found um, even more um, interesting here was this uh, apparently half-secret support that Bulgaria was giving um, Ukraine at an early stage of the war when it was apparently without much fanfare supporting Uh, quite substantially, Ukraine with um, Soviet-era weaponry and ammunition, Mm. uh, and there wasn't much reporting at the the time about that, but apparently Bulgaria, with its um, deliveries, filled an important um, gap in all of that. So um, it's now difficult to imagine a sort of alternative scenario with a different U.S. president or a different U.S. foreign policy behavior, how europe would have behaved but um, uh, overall i'm i'm also rather on the positive side here that the 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 reaction has been largely adequate it has been too slow of course and uh, there's still now a lot of uh, things that uh, have not been done the the amounts and the quality of the weaponry that has been delivered to ukraine is insufficient but on the whole, the for countries like Germany, the um, the change is indeed indeed deep, and in in the German historical context, it's also fast. It's not fast enough, of course, for um, against the background of the events in Ukraine. But um, in the last year, Germany has changed very deeply, and um, it it will not go back, I think, to its its former sort of outlook.
0: Mhm. And it it's interesting because the the in many ways the 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 commentary about the reactions of certain of specific European countries ended up being completely wild off the mark. I rem- I remember when when uh Giorgia Meloni came to power a couple of months ago, you know, all the excited talk was, you know, was about the the fact that uh Berlusconi had made whatever remarks and and she was herself a figure of the right and therefore you could expect. In fact, it's been the exact opposite. Italy has been um, just as steadfast in its in its support of Ukraine as it was under uh, under Draghi. Um, what do you think explains the this lasting sense, I think in the, in the in the European public, perhaps not at the level of every single government, but in the European public that the energy, the cost in terms of inflation and so on and so forth, has to be in a certain sense disconnected from what is going on in Ukraine? Is it just a uh, a, a kind of a basic sympathy for for these people who, after all, look just like us.
1: Um, that's a good question, and I I would be very interesting to see uh, perhaps survey research on this, or uh, perhaps also qualitative um, uh, methods applied to researching this. What exactly has um, the publics and the parties? And the party leaders uh, driven to come out where they came out eventually, uh, because as you rightly indicated, I mean, a part of um, the Western political lead, both on the left and the right, was um, uh, either neutral towards Russia or even pro-Russian, and we still see that, of course, in um, in Latin America, for instance, where both the, right. um, the the right and the left are sort of ambivalent, at least uh, in their uh, relationship to the war. I th- my suspicion here is that simply the factual uh, events they were so powerful and the the arrival of the refugees you know the the families these are largely women with children that, who are the refugees i mean you know the, the, you cannot you cannot sort of agitate this away you cannot sort of there's no propaganda that can really compete with it, with this, with reality All Right. and um, also the, the the horrible pictures and the um you know and the the outrageous way in which russia has behaved in ukraine which was not so outrageous of course in the russian historical terms i, I guess many in moscow now are now perhaps um, surprised that why is is it that the methods that moscow has used in afghanistan in chechnya in georgia in syria in syria yeah Um, already before, you know, all these bombing campaigns and also in eastern Ukraine, you know, sort of concentration camps and uh, and torture and, uh, you know, I mean, if you look now at the pictures actually from from Chechnya, they they look very similar uh, from the two Chechen wars to what is happening now in Ukraine. But that back then, these pictures somehow they didn't make it into into mass media that that much. Now they are every day in in mass media the Ukrainian pictures, and perhaps that has made the difference.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think it seems to me that there the uh, there's kind of been a a history shock in a way in the in the European public, in the sense that this war, even though of course it's it's fought to some extent with very high-tech weaponry, high Mars and, and whatnot. But it, the way especially the Russians have fought it, it's a very 19th century war or early 20th century war of just bom- barbaric bombardment, of ethnic cleansing, of literally stealing Ukrainian children and bringing them across the border. Very, sim- things are very similar to what the Russians did in the occupied territories in the First World War, for example. And, you know, I encourage uh, my listeners to, to, to listen uh, to the episodes I've done on, on the First World War. And just that sense of, you know, this war takes us back to, a, to, a, to an era in which these kinds of things were imaginable, right? I think the European public just was, was shocked, perhaps even more than by the images, by that realization.
1: Yeah, I think there is then this sort of idealistic, I would call it, reaction to uh, this uh, in terms of empathy, in terms of solidarity, and um, simply of of an urge to have to do something. But perhaps what may also play here a role is that um, at least um, among diplomats and politicians and experts there's now a better understanding that uh, this war is not only about Ukraine and not only about Eastern Europe and not only about Europe, it's actually about the international order. And if Russia gets away with doing things like this, then this creates an example that uh, bodes uh, not very well for the stability of the international system. And um, I may have mentioned that already in our last um, interview, uh, the scandal here is really that Russia is doing, of course, all of these things because it has nuclear weapons Mm -hmm. and because Ukraine has no nuclear weapons. And the scandal here is that um, with the um, non-proliferation treaty, Um, russia is explicitly allowed to have nuclear weapons and ukraine is explicitly forbidden to have nuclear weapons and if now russia gets away with this sort of behavior towards a non-nuclear weapon state being itself a guarantor a founder um, of the non-proliferation treaty then this may actually encourage uh, proliferation and that then countries will try to get nuclear weapons either for defending themselves or for extending their territories and that may have also played a role at least um i don't think that is understood by by the broad mass of the people but um among experts and diplomats and politicians perhaps that is now understood and that is why they have also changed their tone
0: mhm yeah it's it, it can be a coincidence that uh uh, Russia has cozied up much more than 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 was the case previously with with Iran and and even with North Korea right buying buying weaponry from from both and really aligning itself much more closely with with both and both are clearly uh looking at what's happening and and uh taking the measure of of the west resolve.
1: Yes uh, and I think the the most important perhaps uh, sort of outside factor here is that Uh, China is perhaps also looking uh, on this war in terms of its interest in uh, conquering uh, Taiwan. Uh, Mm -hmm. So um, that may be yet another um, sort of factor that is playing um, into the especially American uh, response to this war in that the U.S. wants to show um, countries like China that uh, Th- such issues cannot be solved with military, uh, uh, with military instruments.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Well, uh, let's uh, let's hope that the Russian offensive fails, the Ukrainian offensive is successful, and that uh, somehow we uh, twenty twenty three will will uh, will bring good news after all. My guest today has been Dr. Andreas Umland. Interested listeners can find a list of his publications on the website of the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. And of course, he's also on Twitter. You can find him there at Umland Andreas. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Dr. Ullman, and I hope we can do this again sometime. Thanks a lot for your time.
1: Thanks a lot, David. Excellent questions.